Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Doc. Hello, Christina. How are you? <laughs> wonderful. Good. It's another exciting day. <laughs> yeah, we're going into a real serious realm here today. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide along with Christina as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy uh, looking for optimal health. And today we're going into the area of mental health with Dr. James Lake. He's an integrative, holistic psychiatrist. We're continuing our program. Last week we were with Jeffrey Swartz, who was a, who still is actually, a PA, and he works in psychiatry and mental health in New York. We had a very nice discussion with him. Today we're going to continue our mental health uh, exploration. Christina, <laughs> tell yeah, us how to here. get in touch. <laughs> yes. Now, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, you may be watching this show a year later at any time. It does not matter. We will make sure that your comment or question uh, gets to our guest or Dr. Woolman, and we will definitely send you a reply. Or if you are listening to this on a device like through iTunes, um, simply give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you, Glenn. You're welcome, Christina. Thank you. So today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Lake, a psychiatrist, and this is very exciting for me. We haven't had a psychiatrist on yet. He was a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at Stanford. He's currently uh, in private practice in Monterey, California, and he's also a visiting assistant professor of medicine at the University of Arizona's School of Medicine and their Center for Integrative Medicine. And this is very important because it seems like a lot of the things that Dr. Lake does has to do with bringing on the complementary and alternative medicine aspect to mental health. He's an author of many books, and he has just written a number of e-books. He also has, writes a number of articles uh, for, various ma for various magazines. He's published. He, uh, he also has uh, chaired caucuses nationally and internationally in, at the American Psychiatric Association, always looking for ways to improve mental health care and bringing on an alternative and complementary medicine aspect to mental health. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. James Lake. Welcome, James. Thank you for the gracious introduction. <laughs> Hello, Dr. James Lake. Thank you so much for honoring our community. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. James, we're going to uh, take a little tour here. And as the medical guide, I like to tell our audience where we're hopefully going. First, we're going to learn a little bit about you, why you became a healer, and why psychiatry and integrative psychiatry. Then we're going to get into some aspects of consciousness and mind and mental health and many of the things that you're doing to help people uh, figure out what's going on in their uh, mental order and disorder. How's that sound to you? Sounds great. Let's go. Good. Excellent. So first, we want to know uh, what got you interested in becoming a healer and then why psychiatry and then how integrative psychiatry. And I'd like you to include in that the question that everybody always asks is, do all psychiatrists go into psychiatry to figure themselves out? Mm. I'll keep that in mind as a subtext of your, as, of your major question. Thank you. I've always been interested in consciousness. I've always been interested in um, the general problem of consciousness and in humans and in animals. In undergraduate days, I studied primate behavior, and I had the opportunity to work with Jane Goodall at Stanford at that time. Nice. And became fascinated with how um, primates uh, behaved. Try to imagine, you know, stepping in their shoes, if you will, you know, in the jungles of Africa. And from that, uh, it was a natural um, choice uh, when going to medical school some years afterward to continue on in the trajectory toward psychiatry as a medical subspecialty. Because in psychiatry, although the emphasis in contemporary psychiatry is on medications and psychotherapy, 
the underlying issues have to do with the nature of human consciousness, both in its normal um, sense when people are healthy and functioning, as well as, of course, what we call pathologies or disorders of consciousness. Uh, during medical school, it became very clear uh, already in, in clinical rotations in psychiatry that the available um, therapies and theories uh, that guide clinicians in understanding and treating mental illnesses were not adequate. They could not adequately explain both the nature of consciousness and, by extension, pathologies of consciousness, nor were the available therapeutics adequate to the task of treating uh, mental illnesses or providing adequate um, um, approaches for maintaining optimal mental health, optimal wellness. So very early on in my career studying medicine as a medical student, it became clear that the, the available so-called traditional biomedical model of psychiatry was not adequate to meet the task of both understanding the nature of consciousness and pathology related to consciousness, as well as treating these disorders. That led me to begin to explore at a very early stage the whole range of what we call in Western culture alternative and complementary therapies, which are, as you well know, Dr. Wolman, accepted as mainstream approaches in other world cultures, such mm -hmm. as China, for example, where sure. acupuncture and herbal medicine are accepted as mainstream, and biomedical approaches used in Western cultures are viewed as alternative. So in a nutshell, this is where my perspective um, was informed. This is the trajectory that led to where I am at this point in time as a clinician, as a writer, and teacher. Were you trying to find yourself? I managed to avoid the subtext <laughs> question. <laughs> I <bet> you did. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for reminding me. There's always some of that. I think um, many people, though perhaps not all, who go into psychiatry um, have some personal issues that they're working out during that time. Uh, during the residency training, it's... Uh, Strongly recommended, though not required, that you undertake um, long-term psychotherapy just so that you'll be a more competent therapist, be able to step in the shoes, if, if you will, of your patients, understand them from their point of view. So I did it for those reasons, and along the way I was able to do some, some important work on my own uh, dynamic issues, family and interpersonal dynamic issues and so forth. It was very valuable. Beautiful. Before we actually get into all of the, the meat of the of the program today. For those that are thinking about a career in medicine and possibly psychiatry, what is the training involved in a psychiatric uh, practice? So as for any um, medical subspecialty, pediatrics, gynecology, surgery, uh, so forth, family medicine, you first need to go through a four-year medical school curriculum. You learn the basic sciences, you go through uh, two years of what are called clinical rotations that involve uh, uh, introduction to all of the major clinical areas of medicine that I've mentioned. And then you do an internship. In the case of psychiatry, the internship is typically divided between neurology and psychiatry. That's one year. Afterwards, you do a three-year residency specializing in psychiatry only. About half of that is inpatient, half of that is a variety of outpatient uh, clinical experiences. During that time, typically you have supervision from people with a, a specialization in a variety of areas of psychiatry, what we used to call organic psychiatry, the interface between medical illness and psychiatric disorders. You learn a great deal about uh, different kinds of psychotherapy from mentors who work with you on an individual basis on a week-to-week -week basis and so forth. You take a lot of call in emergency rooms so that you mm -hmm. have some experience, and we're, as you're very familiar with, Dr. Wolman is an emergency physician, and uh, so you have a lot of experience managing um, people in crises coming into emergency situations, which is really an important opportunity for getting them back on a stable track. So you have the whole variety of um, experiences, inpatient, outpatient. There's a lot of overlap between neurology and psychiatry. So psychiatrists study uh, a great deal of neurology. Neurologists study a great deal of psychiatry in their training as well. What about integrative psychiatry? Is there a training in that? There are a few programs that are um, currently bringing that paradigm into the mainstream. Um, the University of Arizona 
um, Center for Integrated Medicine has a module on integrated mental health care that I helped to co-author many years ago. This is now a distance learning program, but they are committed to bringing that information to their fellows, the majority of their fellows in, in Dr. Weil's program in Tucson are family physicians. I believe over 90% are. And uh, in fact, that's, that's uh, not a bad thing because the majority of day-to-day -day mental health care is provided by family physicians. They have a good and, and broad training in that area. There's also a PhD program in integrated mental health care at Saybrook University, which is largely an online uh, program, but they, I believe they have two uh, one-week intensives during the course of the year. There are some courses in integrative psychiatry in, in some psychiatry residency programs in the U.S. and Canada. And I believe it's achieved a, a much deeper and a more formalized place in the European Union countries as well as Australia. So it, it depends on where you are geographically uh, as to how difficult or easy it will be to, to get this kind of training. But it's, it's emerging. It's becoming more widely available over, over the years. Yeah, I'm very glad of that, and I know a lot of people are very glad of that, and I think we'll get into that in a few minutes. So at the beginning, you use the word consciousness quite a lot in your brief introduction to yourself. What is consciousness? This is the uh, $9 million question. Um, I've thought about this quite a bit, uh, written some articles about this. I've been involved in some research projects looking into particular aspects of the role of intention in healing, which is a very interesting aspect of consciousness. So my, my short answer to your question would be that uh, the way one uh, defines consciousness or where you can get to in terms of a definition depends on the premises you begin with that frame the question itself. If your premise is that consciousness is a kind of phenomenon or thing that has to do with living organisms, then you limit the kind of definition to a phenomenon that can be associated with, with animals, typically uh, higher order vertebrate animals like primates, Humans, some people believe, are at the pinnacle of that hierarchy. If you define consciousness in another way, you can get to the point of defining, of thinking about consciousness as unrelated to or indirectly related to um, living creatures uh, or physical objects. This is the whole field of panpsychism. In the area of medicine, the, the dominant theory of consciousness is called functionalism, which states that consciousness can be defined as what the brain does. The, the, the neural circuits underpinning uh, perception, higher abstract reasoning, and so forth, constitute what consciousness is and can be. I think that's a very limited definition. I don't subscribe to that because that doesn't permit you to take into account what happens, what's been observed in many cultures over many decades, when healers direct intention toward patient and healing results by empirically measurable outcomes. So I don't think that's an adequate model, and I think that's also slowly um, evolving to a more comprehensive, more adequate explanatory model within medicine. Is consciousness the same as mind? Again, some writers and theorists would claim that consciousness and mind are synonyms. They might claim that uh, the functions of consciousness are another way of describing or explaining what mind does or the phenomena that collectively uh, are interpreted as mind. Uh, that's, that's, uh, this has to do with linguistics and the philosophical argument that you begin from, how you argue toward that. Um, I think these are different kinds of things, different kinds of definitions, and um, some people would equate them as identical kinds of things. It seems to me that... Uh in talking about autism, for example, where it's now become a spectrum disorder, hmm. so, so we now look at it as a spectrum, uh, it seems to me that health, mental health in particular, is also a spectrum where we're, hmm. where we're either on the disorder portion or the order portion. Do you have any <coughs> thoughts on that? I'd like to um, add a footnote to my answer to your previous question because it dovetails beautifully into this question. Uh, the, the current understanding of, of autism is that uh, autism has to do with a, an inability to have a, a, a theory or understanding of mind of another being. People who have severe autism lack the, the capacity to, to project, if you will, a sense of mind or consciousness into another person, another creature. 
Um, so it's it's a it's a good segue into your your question about autism. I think that there's a lot of controversy still over the concept of spectrum disorders in general. I, I think that with the DSM-5 in particular, there was an effort to promulgate uh, even more uh, divisions between the previous hierarchy of, um, of disorders in the DSM-4-TR version. I'm not an autism expert. I can't comment specifically on the, the um, the uh, advantages and, and limitations of the new revisions to diagnoses of autism. But I know that um, th there is a concept that has come out both with respect to um, categories for diagnosis of autism and ADHD that talk about subthreshold um, symptomatology, in which case some individuals may experience some very um, clinically minor symptoms that may interfere with their capacity to function in very minor ways, but they might be viewed uh, as on a kind of a continuum uh, that, that would include more severe forms of this disorder, such as Asperger's and, and autism and so forth, but be viewed as having subclinical symptomatology. And I think there's ongoing debate in the academies that, that, uh, that, have, that focus on this subject at this time. You know, you, you brought up the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, right? And that's mm -hmm. what basically is, is all of the mental disorders. And as we've looked at that through the years, uh, how does culture play a role in that? For example, when we were talking, I believe, with Jeffrey Schwartz uh, in our last talk, we brought up the concept of homosexuality at one point being uh, a mental disorder, and now that our culture has looked at it differently, it's no longer that. So I wonder, when we come up with these ideas and we suddenly put a, a label on someone, uh, that stays with them. And what's the process of deciding what is a mental disorder, and how does that happen? These are very good questions. Um, in general, the process uh, within the American Psychiatric Asso Association determining what comprises a mental disorder uh, takes place at the level of committees, um, which are uh, typically staffed by academics who have uh, expertise in the various so-called psychiatric disorders. These committees uh, typically meet for over a period of several years. They go through the literature. Uh, the work typically begins with an extensive review of the peer-reviewed literature, which by definition, from my point of view, as an integrative psychiatrist, is, is limited to only those kinds of studies that would be published in the first place in the peer-reviewed medical literature in Western medical journals. Right, good point. Yeah, there's a lot of um, lot of bias there that's not so obvious unless you begin to look for it. Um, but clearly there's there's bias, self-serving bias in my view. So um, at the end of a period of time defined by the American Psychiatric Association process for reviewing and revising the DSM criteria, the committees will typically reach consensus, which will lead to uh, uh, revisions, uh, if, if indicated, of diagnostic criteria. Some of those revisions might result in changing, the adding new categories, new subcategories to a particular disorder, or they might stay the same. So that is the process. Um, some people would, would argue that um, there there is a lot of politics and um, an influence that enters into that process that is other and than the kinds of um, academic research considerations that uh, should enter into that process. Uh, for example, it's been argued that um, some people who uh, have been on committees uh, with respect to the bipolar uh, diagnostic categories may have had self-serving interests that may have led to um, um, extending diagnostic criteria in ways that would justify prescribing medications to people who before this period of time were not appropriate um, candidates for medication. This is those, goes back to the sub-threshold um, idea that I mentioned earlier. There's some debate in academic circles and in general about that. Alan Francis, uh, former chair of the American Psychiatric Association, has written a book which is a scathing critique of not only the DSM-5, but the process that led to the revisions that are now embodied in the DSM-5. I would uh, refer your listeners to that if they want to go into this in more depth. So psychiatry sounds like needs a psychiatrist. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, some would argue that there there are some um, as 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 is true with any um, large organization that represents enormously diverse issues. 
within a professional population, um, there there could be some opportunity for reworking how things are done at an institutional level. I'm going back, Glenn, to your earlier question, your earlier question about um, culture and the role of culture and how um, considerations of culture come into the DSM process. It's a very important one. Um, Dr. Francis Lee, uh, who um, was uh, a, a chair of the first uh, endowed program in cultural psychiatry at UC Davis until his retirement a few years ago, was at the head of the uh, American Psychiatric Association uh, Committee effort to, to bring uh, considerations of culture into the mainstream within the APA process and, and Western culture in general. Um, he, he and his committee set this up and made this happen. They created an appendix on uh, issues related to culture for the DSM, mm. which has been part of the DSM for several uh, iterations at this point in time. And from the Western biomedical perspective, which is what the DSM-5 is about, um, there are uh, so-called culture-bound syndromes, which from this Western biomedical perspective um, represent particular kinds of behavior or somatic uh, um, manifestations that take place in the context of particular cultures. We view as um, representing uh, uh, psychological distress, which, which individuals who experience them in the host culture may view as spiritual imbalance, energetic imbalances. So it's an effort to map on Western biomedical criteria, reductionistic criteria, to kinds of experiences that may not be fully explainable in terms of our uh, Western uh, kinds of biomedical reductionistic criteria. In other words, someone in Southeast Asia might experience a spiritual crisis. We would interpret that within the DSM process as a culture-bound syndrome. And they would view that as a kind of a, a very disturbing spiritual imbalance, perhaps possession or other. Um, so depending on where you begin, you start with different philosophical premises about what is real, um, how phenomena are manifest, and you get to different assumptions about the causes of disorders, the nature of disorders, and by extension, how you can treat them and make them better. Very different sets of premises, um, starting at a, a basic philosophical level in Western biomedicine and in other major world systems of medicine, such as Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, and others. We spoke with Dr. David Tresmer, also a psychologist, who uh, spoke of anthroposophic uh, psychology uh, using the spiritual. So I think that that's what you're alluding to in part of this cultural aspect of mental illness. Approximately how many mental disorders are there? You know, I would be guessing. That's all right. Um, I, I did a very interesting exercise with a, a former teacher of mine at Stanford during my residency days who had, uh, who had um, actually retained copies of the original editions of all the DSM uh, books mm. back, starting back, I think, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And it was quite an interesting exercise to do. There were several residents who met with him and, and took a look at this. Um, the first one, I believe, had... Uh, fewer than 100 disorders, with very few subcategories, subtypes of disorders, if you will. And the second one um, may have had, oh, significantly more disorders. I believe that um, the, the number of disorders really multi multiplied uh, rap quite rapidly uh, between the DSM-2 and DSM-3. And that has continued perhaps almost doubling the number of so-called disorders from that time to the DSM-4, the DSM-4 text revision, or TR, and then again the DSM-5. I think that um, there was a debate among committees and among people who uh, watched the DSM process unfold over these various versions of the DSM over the decades about uh, whether disorders should be split into further subcategories are lumped into other major categories. The DSM-5, um, although there is much room for criticism, I think it's made some progress in that uh, they have embraced uh, uh, a concept that hasn't been part of the, the discussion, the thought world, if you will, within DSM until this point in time, which is uh, uh, continuum or spectrum um, um, disorders instead of discrete categories. The idea being that there probably aren't uh, very many discrete kinds of pathology, but things vary in the subtle ways along a graded continuum spectrum. That works, I think, quite well uh, for certain kinds of um, 
mental health problems, but it may not be appropriate or valid for other kinds. And that discussion is taking place. So there's there there are uh, problems with the DSM process, but it, I think also there has been progress compared to where we were before. So let's talk about psychiatry in terms of treatments. We we know about talk therapy. We know about drug therapy. We talk about electroconvulsive therapy. And now that we have neuroimaging and the genome, we're starting to learn a lot more about causes of of mental illness and possibilities for treatments and solutions. So I'd like you to address some of the treatments and solutions. And I would also like you to add into that how a intention plays a role in mental health and healing. You brought that up a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many ways of um, categorizing treatments in medicine generally and certainly in psychiatry. Um, one way of doing that is to to think of certain treatments as biological treatments. That would include, of course, medications. Mm-hmm. And then um, non-biological treatments, for example, psychotherapy. Um, Biological treatments uh, would also include electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, bright light exposure therapy, um, what what has been called um, uh, high-density negative ion exposure therapy, which is a very interesting emerging treatment that might be beneficial for severe depression. So... The, the idea is that um, there are many kinds of treatments that address the causes of mental health problems at different levels and the very complex system that makes up the human body, brain, mind, soul, if you will. Depending on what you're looking at uh, and what you um, uh, consider to be the cause of the disorder, and usually there is more than one cause, you might more likely target a biological um, cause with using a medication, for example, or you might more likely use uh, psychotherapy as the mainstay of your treatment plan. In my experience doing this work for over 20 years, it's very rare that you find uh, an individual who has uh, only one kind of cause for their particular mental health problem. This is an invitation for integrative approaches. Um, because by definition, you're putting together an individualized plan that addresses numerous layers or kinds of causes of depression, anxiety, whatever the major issue is. And also, typically, you won't just have one particular problem. You might have anxiety and depression. In fact, the majority of people who have um, a difficulty with depressed mood also have anxiety. Many of them have a substance abuse problem as well. So you're, you're approaching complex problems, usually multiple problems, using a formula of different kinds of treatments that address different kinds of causes and a constellation of multiple mental health problems that often go together. Symptoms are waxing and waning over time. I think that none of these uh, uh, contemporary approaches in, in the biological sphere replace or can displace psychotherapy. I think psychotherapy is essential and extremely valuable for anyone who is working on a mental health problem of any kind, even people with severe uh, disorders such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, for giving them uh, more grounding capacity for stabilization, for reflection. This indirectly goes to the second part of your question, which is about intention. If an individual um, practices mindfulness um, using uh, a structured method or a very simple practice of counting breaths, to achieve relaxation, a sense of inner, inner calmness. There are many studies that have shown that they can uh, attain uh, more equilibrium, if you will. They can achieve uh, some significant reduction of the severity of their mm-hmm. symptoms, whether it's anxiety, depressed mood, psychosis, post-traumatic stress disorder, and others. The other layer um, at which intention probably plays a role, and we're just beginning to learn about that, uh, using uh, functional brain imaging research approaches has to do with directed intention from a healer to an individual or from the individual to him or herself through prayer, through meditation, through guided imagery. There are many studies that have been done using advanced functional brain imaging te- technologies such as functional magnetic resonance imaging and so forth that show that that there is a consistent relationship between intention directed by the individual inward um, to serve healing, or 
intention directed by a healer, such as a Reiki master, a Qigong master, a Kahuna, traditional Hawaiian healer in Hawaii and so forth, and changes in immunology and immune function and brain function and in clinical symptomatology for many disorders, including many, many so-called mental health disorders. So there's an emerging story there that's quite interesting. Yeah, and I think definitely. The, the go-to person, uh, the, the, um, the expert in this area is Dr. Larry Dossey. Um, who has written uh, many important works. Uh, the one on this particular subject would be Healing Words, um, but uh, many important uh, uh, works on this area of the relationship between mind and healing and intention. Larry Dossey also talks about uh, non-local healing. Exactly. When you talk about healing, by definition, you need to bring in the considerations of non-local healing. When people gather by hundreds in, in Washington, D.C., and they engage in transcendental meditation for a week, and you observe statistically that there are significant reductions in the rates of crime um, and um, of all sorts. Um, and that study has been repeated many times uh, recently, I believe, in other cities. Um, there, you, you cannot but conclude that there is a relationship between non-local intention and change in human behavior. And um, one particular type of human behavior would be uh, what we call symptoms of mental health problems, mental illness. There's a general kind of phenomenon going on, and I think between intention and human behavior and how mind functions, and I view the relationship between intention and, and illness or mental health problems as one particular dimension of that general, more general kind of relationship. Do you think if we were able to uh, get the entire world, everyone in the planet, to spend one hour in compassion all at the same time, we would be able to change the world? I think that um, if we were able to somehow align conscious intention among people from all cultures and all spiritual traditions for any amount of time, there will be a significant and noticeable change in how people behave and how they regard other people. And I don't know how long that would last. My guess is that there is so much on the negative side at this time that uh, it may not be a, a, a um, complete or enduring fix. But an hour a week, perhaps, maybe an hour a day, there, there's so much, uh, so much darkness there. I can start with five minutes. If everyone would do that five minutes, that's something already. <laughs> five minutes is realistic. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. A little bit. Um, uh, Dr. Lake, <coughs> a question has come up. You had mentioned uh, non-local healing. Can you give me a definition of that? So the, the general concept of non-local healing is that intention is directed either by an individual to another person or animal or plant, or by a healer to another person or animal or plant. And that by virtue of something that may happen in space-time between the person sending intention, directing intention, if you will, mm -hmm. and some mechanism at the level of mind-brain or energetics that haven't been clearly defined by Western science, there is a change in the animal, the person, the plant that improves functioning that results in increased capacity to function at the level of human illness that might manifest, for example, as um, improved immunologic function, fighting cancer, fighting HIV-AIDS. In terms of mental health care, that might manifest as someone who reports fewer or less severe symptoms of depression or anxiety following non-contact or non-local healing. There have been studies that bear this out in several areas of so-called energy healing, mm -hmm. which might more aptly and correctly be called information healing, in my view. It's more mm -hmm. like a coextensive information um, wave that encompasses two separate systems in space-time. But the, the, the word used today for this kind of phenomenon is, is energy healing. Um, so it's, it's more than placebo. Placebo has been ruled out in many, many cases. Many studies have been done. It's still beyond the means of most people who have studied Western medicine and practice medicine in this tradition to understand and to work with in their day-to-day -day clinical work. Because it's outside of the, the theory 
and the clinical therapeutics that are accepted as part of what what Western medicine does, how Western medicine conceptualizes the world and what's possible. And again, I would refer you to Dr. Larry Dossi as the as the dean of this this area. Yeah, he's the preeminent expert. Yeah, and Christina, part of it, just an easy example, is normally you would picture a psychiatrist in a room with a person and talking to them, right? Yes. Whereas the non-local means that psychiatrist or that group of people could be in another country yes. and they're sending an intention. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my understanding of what Larry Dossie speaks about. The, uh, the interesting part of that... Go ahead. No, continue. Yeah, the interesting part of that, Glenn, you made a very good point here is that the, the idea uh, that's emerged um, from many studies, good studies, well-designed studies, well-controlled studies over many years now, is that distance may not play a, a role in healing when intention is involved. In other words, you get, a, get the same kind of um, effect whether a person is 10 feet away, 10 miles away, or on the other side of the planet. Let's talk a little bit about... Uh, Traditional psychiatry and integrative psychiatry. Give us a little bit of the difference of the two of them. And also, tell us, because you've been at the forefront of this, tell us some of the initiatives you've brought forth, the caucuses, the ideas that you've brought forth, uh, paving the way for integrative, complementary, and alternative modalities in mental disorders. In, in very broad terms, the the model that's used in the West and broadly in many other world regions is called the biopsychosocial spiritual model. And according to the textbooks, according to what our teachers um, teach us in residency programs in psychiatry, the concept is to approach each patient from the perspective of biological underpinnings of illness, psychological underpinnings, social, cultural underpinnings of illness, and also spiritual. So in recent decades, the paradigm was extended from biopsychosocial model to biopsychosocial spiritual. So that's part of our formal training. It's um, endorsed by contemporary mainstream psychiatry in Western countries. However, when you look at how psychiatry is practiced clinically, you often find situations that depart from the orthodoxy that we're given during our training. For example, the majority of uh, clinical psychiatrists um, exclusively uh, practice psychopharmacology. We prescribe meds, we refill meds, we comment on meds. There's a lot of knowledge and expertise required to do that well. And, And there's a reason that psychiatrists do that. This very complex part requires a lot of sophistication, a lot of effort to do that well. The people who practice psychotherapy and do other kinds of work um, at the level of social interventions, psychological interventions, and so forth, are typically trained in other domains. They're psychologists, social workers, and so forth. Um, the spiritual part tends, tends to be lacking, tends to be outside of the contemporary paradigm that's embraced by Western biomedical psychiatry. So this is the contemporary model. Uh, you might consider it integrative. Uh, some people who write about this call it integrated, and that psychiatry, when done well, really needs to work closely together with the medical subspecialties, uh, because many people who have significant medical disorders often have psychiatric issues and vice versa. So integrated from the perspective of biomedical psychiatry often means that you're working hand-in-hand with a family doctor or a neurologist, a cardiologist, to kind of tease out Uh, interconnections between their medical problems and their psychological or psychiatric issues. That's not what we mean by integrated mental health or integrative psychiatry in this new sense of the word we've been talking about today, which includes not only the conventional biomedical approaches that are valid and have been substantiated by decades of research studies, but includes also evidence-based complementary and alternative approaches uh, such as herbal medicines, um, vitamins, um, omega-3 fatty acids, amino acids, other kinds of natural supplements that have been found to be quite effective for both treating or preventing particular mental health problems. Um, integrative psychiatry or integrated mental health care, which is a broader way of phrasing it, also encompasses the whole range of mind-body practices, what I call somatic approaches, such as um, massage. Physical exercise is fundamentally important for most people, particularly people uh, working with depression. 
Then there are the energy and information approaches. This is this is a paradigm that I developed in, in my previous writing and teaching. Mm. Um, some energy approaches are validated by current science, such as bright bright uh, light therapy for depression, for seasonal affective disorder, such as um, EEG biofeedback, electroencephalographic biofeedback, other kinds of biofeedback. Then there are these so-called subtle energy therapies that have not yet been validated by Western science, but may in the future, such as Reiki, healing touch, Qigong, therapeutic touch, thought field therapy. Um, some of these may eventually be validated by Western science. Some may be rejected. Um, the interesting point, Glenn, is that if you expand the paradigm of Western science in general and look at these kinds of phenomena from the point of view of quantum mechanics, a broader paradigm, not just 19th century Newtonian mechanics, but quantum mechanics, you, you soon get to a point where these kinds of phenomena you see in the name of energetic healing or subtle energy healing are not only possible, but expected. And I think that's where medicine is heading. It's, it's, we're at a very interesting place now. Yeah, that's very exciting, especially to be thinking of all of these, all of the healers. We've, we've interviewed a number of them on, on Magical Medical Tour that work with energy, and it's good to see that that's being incorporated, especially into something so important as mental health. Continue. So thank you for asking me to comment on organizations that are trying to um, bring this new way of thinking about mental health care to the forefront and to um, bring it into mainstream practices of mental health care in this culture and uh, and globally, in fact. There are two uh, initiatives that I've been involved with. In fact, I helped to found them and I've chaired them in the past. One is the American Psychiatric Association Caucus on Complementary and Alternative Medicine, which has been ongoing since 2004. This is a group of uh, psychiatrists who are members of the APA, who have uh, established an expert-level website, who put together um, symposia within the APA annual meetings, and are committed to teaching psychiatrists about uh, the the evidence base, um, responsible, uh, legally safe um, approaches of of complementary alternative uh, care, addressing the range of mental health problems. The other one is called the International Network of Integrated Mental Health, and this is a global nonprofit organization that was established in 2010 that I helped to found and that I chaired initially. This is dedicated to promoting an agenda for, of advocacy, teaching, research, and collaboration across specialty lines, across cultures, and, and national boundaries with the goal of improving the quality of mental health care in general, making all of these treatment approaches more accessible to people, regardless of where they may be located. So these are two organizations that are really the vanguard of this movement that are working to um, promote an agenda for transforming mental health care into an approach that's more person-centered and more complete, hopefully more effective and humane as well. I have to say congratulations on doing that. You know, in medicine, we, we look, we're mainly about tradition and to take on new aspects and move into the future for the sake of helping people. This is great work on your part. Thank you. It's uh, slow going, but we're making progress year by year. Of course. Uh, it's, it's been slow going in all of complementary and alternative medicine and all aspects of medicine. You know, James, we always talk on this show about prevention of different injuries and illnesses. And you've alluded to a number of things, breathing practices and exercise and other therapies. Do you have any thoughts on preventing mental illness? And the other aspect would be, is there a way to maintain any exercises that we could do to maintain a healthy mind? Very good questions. I think that um, the emphasis in clinical mental health care for any mental health professional, psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, family therapist, should be equally divided between treating and prevention. Prevention typically comes in the form of advice on maintaining optimal wellness during therapy sessions. Very simple lifestyle changes adhered to uh, consistently day to day go a very long way toward preventing um, mental illness, or if you have a history of mental illness, 
toward reducing the chance of relapse, toward recurrence of severe mental health problems, whatever that may be, particularly in the, in the case of depression, anxiety, but also other mental health problems. I think that um, exercise is fundamentally important for prevention and for reducing the chances of relapse. Uh, there's good evidence for this in the case of depression and anxiety. There's less evidence, but still some evidence for bipolar disorder, psychosis, and other kinds of disorders. Um, good diet is another important, I call it, pillar of preventive medicine, both with respect to many um, medical conditions as well as mental health problems. I, I always advise my pa patients to um, carefully review their diet. If they have any kind of mental health problem, I review this with them during the session. And if there are gaps, apparent gaps in their diet, if they're eating junk food, for example, or skipping breakfast, which many people do in this phonetically paced world, I will try to uh, encourage them to change their diet to look at that as an, as an important part of prevention and maintaining wellness. Another uh, pillar of prevention or, or wellness, if you will, is a simple relaxation or mind-body practice. You don't need to go to a retreat. You can engage in a very simple breathing practice or guided imagery practice 10 minutes in the morning on the way to work using a guided imagery CD or something you download on your iPhone and again in the evening. So exercise, a good diet or dietary change if that's indicated, um, mind-body practice or relaxation. These are pillars of what we would call prevention, prevention or wellness uh, in both medicine and mental health care in general. Very nice. Um, do you think that our society is on too many medications? Absolutely. And, <laughs> all right. <laughs> that was That's easy. an easy one. <laughs> we do love to hear that one, don't we? <laughs> oh, I, think, I think this is a widely shared concern um, among psychiatrists as well. I think there's there's agreement among psychiatrists that that uh, people are overmedicated mm. for many reasons. Uh, psychiatrists and other clinicians who prescribe psychotropic medications are very busy. Um, certain kinds of medications are inappropriately prescribed or overprescribed for the wrong reasons, such as stimulants to children whose parents want mm. them to focus better to do well on their SATs. Um, such as uh, to elderly persons in nursing care homes who are demented and agitated, who have too high or um, too uh, frequent a dosing of uh, potent sedative hypnotics. They become addicted to them. They have fall risks. They have enormous medical complications. And they mask the progression of their neurologic disorder, dementia, whatever it may be. Antidepressants are enormously overprescribed, um, often not reviewed and not changed um, for a long time after they're prescribed. Uh, there are many examples of this. It's, it's a serious issue, and I believe that most psychiatrists would agree with this. There's a collusion between big pharma and um, institutions that promote this kind of thing, and there's a lot of money going into advertising all the time. Though I believe there's been some pushback uh, on this particular theme within the APA committees. Uh, people are trying to recorrect that course. You know, the, 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 I don't want to paint myself as an anti-psychiatry person, because I'm not. There's, there's oh, a lot on, of good James. work. There's a lot of good work going on uh, within the the kind of conservative circles in the APA and academic psychiatry. And there's also the shadow side of this. Um, you know, where the long reach of the big pharma is uh, attempting to influence policies within the FDA, APA, and academic circles, and so forth. So it's it's a mixed bag. It's, there's not a simple picture. But in general, medications uh, for treating mental illness are enormously overprescribed, inappropriately prescribed, not monitored adequately, resulting in enormous uh, safety issues for, I think, millions of people. I mean, you could examine the water, I think, in New York City 20 years ago and find uh, Prozac, right? Right. <laughs> so. But, so now when we talk about that and we talk about integrative psychiatry, there might be some psychiatrist that's saying, uh, for your depression, let's take valerian root, for example. Should we be looking at that the same way that we're looking at Prozac? Very good question. And the simple answer is yes. They should uh, comply with the same criteria for safety and efficacy. Uh, there should be no difference, ideally. In other words, um, if you are approaching someone um, as an integrative clinician, you should approach them with equal footing 
both with respect to offering them choices on the conventional side, as well as to offering them evidence-based choices on the alternative and complementary side. The idea is not to find an herb or mindfulness practice to replace the need for a psychotropic prescription drug. The idea is to find the best fit individualized treatment plan that addresses them with respect to their particular symptoms, what the evidence suggests, and in addition to that, what they prefer, what they can afford, what's available to them, where they live, where they reside. This is about person-centered medicine or integrated medicine, as we call it. These are the principles of integrated medicine. In some cases, for example, a patient might walk in to, to see me, and they may have failed uh, trials on three antidepressants because they didn't work or they caused side effects that they could not tolerate. In that case, I would probably begin talking with them about some of the, the more validated uh, natural supplements, such as SAMe, S-adenosylmethionine, or supplementing an antidepressant with a particular kind of folic acid that works very well in the brain and some people gives them that added uh, push that can help them with depression. On the other hand, a patient might walk in later that day who has tried St. John's wort, SAMe, five other natural supplements without effect or complaining of side effects, had to quit, had to stop taking them. Herbs can also cause side effects. They can also be dangerous. In that case, I might uh, logically, if I'm being ideologically neutral, as I should be, I might talk to them about several prescription antidepressants and begin them on one that might be appropriate for them, given the severity of their symptoms and what I know about what has worked and what hasn't worked for them in the past. So the idea is that you start from an ideological neutral place, and you consider the range of treatment approaches on both sides of the fence and not being um, committed to one particular type with respect to the patient's needs, with respect to their interest, what they can afford, what's available to them through insurance or where they reside. This is the concept of integrated mental health care in a nutshell. Yeah, that's very good. Very good summary there. Now, you've written a number of books, clinical books for psychiatrists and health practitioners, but you've also recently written a number of e-books for the, the general public on mental health. Is that true? That's correct. You know, in the past few weeks, I published a series of 10 short e-books on integrated mental health care. Uh, the series is titled The, the uh, Integrated Mental Health Solution. They're available on Amazon. They're available on Smashwords. Um, the idea behind this project was to create a, a practical resource that was uh, afford affordable and accessible to anyone, anywhere, um, that um, would permit people who have several common mental health problems. There are nine I cover. Um, to get a very uh, clear introduction to both the concepts of integrated mental health care as well as the best evidence for um, non-medication treatments that they may use for treating particular symptoms or maintaining wellness if they're feeling stable at this time. There are also sections in these ebooks to talk about uh, appropriate indications for combining them with um, medications, when not to combine them, when it may be appropriate to safe way, when it may be dangerous or contraindicated to combine them with medications. That's the integrated part. So these are now available. I think they cost $4, uh, you know, to download. Seems reasonable for mental health. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my intention is to translate this into uh, several languages and try to get the word out to different world regions in an effort to um, educate people about what's available um, outside of medications, um, but also to point back to the fact, to point back to organizations um, like the International Network for Integrated Mental Health mm -hmm. and the APA work that are ongoing so people will have some hope that there is more out there than what may be available to them and limited where they live. But this mm -hmm. is the, the goal behind the uh, ebook series. Very good. You, you're about to travel to Tibet, mm -hmm. and you're going to be working with uh, healers and psychiatrists. What's your purpose other than just to be in Tibet? I'm going to a region of Tibet called Amdo, to the city of Sining, where there is a, uh, a major Tibetan hospital. Uh, Tibetan medicine is uh, a, a tradition of healing in its own right, which overlaps somewhat with Ayurveda from India and Chinese medicine. 
but it has its own unique principles and therapeutics as well. I've been fascinated by this medicine for many years, been a student of it for some time. The, the trip will have two purposes. One uh, will be to uh, be a student again in an intensive course on Tibetan medicine. And uh, then I hope to spend time meeting with uh, uh, leaders of Tibetan medicine, leading thinkers, leading clinicians who practice Tibetan medicine to begin planning for an international symposium in the coming mm. years yes. that will that will involve both western trained mental health professionals and leading tibetan physicians the purposes of which will be to build bridges for collaborative training education perhaps research in the future uh, tibetan medicine i think has an enormous amount to offer western medicine uh, particularly in terms of mental health care there are there are herbal treatments other specialized kinds of somatic treatments as they describe them kunye and other treatments um, that i think could bring an enormous amount of relief to suffering that we cannot adequately address from this perspective of, of biomedicine. And my understanding um, is that uh, the uh, Tibetan physicians who I am about to meet are also interested in building bridges uh, of this sort. Uh, there is a, a major uh, network of Tibetan physicians who carry on trainings and, and um, collaborative research in Western Europe. It's been there for some time now. So my hope is to bring that into the U.S. more so and to uh, bring a voice uh, to uh, collaborative work between mental health professionals, again, in this country and Tibetan physicians who specialize in treating mental health disorders from their point of view. It'd be great so. to have you come back uh, after your trip and have another discussion with you to see how you look at things differently and what might be happening in the future for world mental health. Speaking of world mental health, if, if theoretically and hypothetically, if, the, if our species in general came into your office to see you, what would your diagnosis be? Could you repeat the question? Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to say in terms of mental health of our species right now on the planet, uh, how would you diagnose us? <laughs> you know, I, if you're in this field and if you're pushing back at the edges and trying to bring in change at the level of systems, to do it for any amount of time, you need to be an optimist, you know, yeah. by definition. You need to believe that what you're doing and what you're committing your time to doing will make a difference, ultimately. So I am an optimist, by definition. I have to be. Um, and I'm an optimist with respect to the health of the species. I think that um, whereas we see the, the horrendous consequences of terrorism, of famine, of starvation, of political unrest, repression, in most countries of the world, um, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's the negative tip of the iceberg. That makes media People want to look at that stuff on internet and on TV and so on. But by the same token, there are tens of million, billions of individuals practicing compassion, doing healing work every day, living their lives, you know, trying to, to live their lives simply, to cut out a living, to, to make the world better. You don't see that on the national news. You don't see that on CNN. It doesn't make the press I think there's much more of that going on than, than the negative. I'm sure so there's of that. hope for us. Oh, yes, of course. Excellent. <clears throat> we're speaking with Dr. James Lake, an integrative holistic psychiatrist, and we're coming to the end of the show. James, do you have a health tip for us? My health tip would be individualized, depending on where your viewers are in life, what would be appropriate for them to change or not in lifestyle. And I would go back to earlier comments about lifestyle prevention or optimal wellness through changes in lifestyle. Keep it simple. Reevaluate whether you exercise enough, whether you manage stress adequately, whether your diet is healthy. Um, I forgot to mention sleep. Sleep is fundamentally important. If on looking at your lifestyle, you find during that review, that you don't exercise at all, that a simple walk for 10 minutes twice a day would help you feel better, 
physically and mentally. Think about doing that. If on review you notice that you're not eating well, you're eating junk or not eating adequately, think about that. Think about how to shore that part of life up, shore up that part of life so that you're eating better day to day. If you're not managing your stress and you're dealing with overwhelming stress day to day, obviously that should be your focus. And you can approach that with a simple exercise, deep breathing, sitting quietly for 10 minutes twice a day. All of these things will bring you much further toward optimal health. Very nice. James, when you were preparing for this show, is there anything we didn't discuss that you really wanted to to, uh, bring out to our audience? I think you've covered the bases, Glenn. I think that you've asked a lot of interesting philosophical and theoretical questions, so I've enjoyed it. Yeah, we have too. I think it's been enlightening Mm. for all of us. Can we choose happiness, by the way? You're asking a lot of daunting questions, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) You need to meet down in Santa Barbara over a beer (laughs) for five hours. Um, You know, the the Buddhist um, would say that if you practice in a skillful way, then you can develop the capacity to choose happiness because the obscurations, the the kinds of psychological factors that get in the way of the possibility of happiness can be understood, acknowledged, and worked through. So you can get to the point after um, some study of dharma and meditation work of, in effect, choosing to be happy. However, I believe it's more complex than that, particularly with respect to what we're talking about. If you have a severe mental illness that may be in part mediated genetically or because of your severe psychosocial circumstances, it's very difficult to choose happiness and in fact function in a happy way as someone who's content. Your brain may not let you do that. If you're suffering from auditory hallucinations, if you're profoundly depressed because of some genetic um, predisposition you may have, if you live in a war-torn area, it's difficult Mm -hmm. to choose happiness. Mm -hmm. It's not so easy is adopting a frame of mind and following a, a mindfulness discipline and then choosing happiness. We are blessed in this country to, um, at least many people are, to be able to have the possibility of choosing a mindset that makes it more likely that we may feel content with our life, with our livelihood. Uh, however, many, many people in this country suffer. There's a lot of suffering here, as we all know. Some people, uh, many people, uh, do not have the means to to eat enough, to live in a safe place. And I think it would be um, superficial of me to make a, a broad sweeping comment that people can choose to be happy and therefore achieve happiness if they try it more or more skillfully. I don't think it's quite that simple. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very complex. As is everything we do. This is everything we do. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. James Lake, for giving us his wisdom and experience and expertise. I would also like to thank my healers and my teachers for allowing me to be on my journey. Thank you, Christina, for being part of this today in Segovia and Yoga Hub. And we appreciate all of our global audience and participating in Magical Medical Tour. So until our next meeting, I would like to thank Dr. James Lake for everything. And until next week, I wish you all optimal health. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And yes, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Lake. This, this has been a, a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, show, um, I must thank say, you. especially the way you've integrated the healing arts, which I know a lot of my mentors and teachers will be very excited to listen to this show because uh, we do believe in the non-local energy healing uh, for many years we've practiced that so this is a very exciting show thank you so much for sharing that thank you Christy I appreciate the opportunity and of course Dr. Glenn Woolman you're the man (laughs) and of course we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information we're grateful for your continuous support and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better If you would like to connect with Dr. James Lake, you can do so through his website, 
theintegrativementalhealthsolution.com, theintegrativementalhealthsolution.com. And uh, he has also given us, um, uh, of course, uh, the listings to ebooks and other organizations that we will make sure that is on the website as well. And uh, we'll make it much easier for you to reach and contact these organizations. And of course, if you would like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, you can do so through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we do always encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. And of course, again, we are always grateful for your feedback, comments, suggestions. Please give us a call anytime at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you for joining us today. And until next time, namaste. Thank you.